Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter, including references to sexual assault. Please take care. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. So my producers want me to start this podcast by talking about my visits to the gynecologist. I'm a mother of two, and I have been to the gynecologist lots and lots and lots of times. But the truth is, I don't want to, because going to the gynecologist is so profoundly personal. And that's what's so amazing about the story that I'm going to tell you about now. A bunch of women, really brave women, came forward to talk about their terrible violating experiences at their gynecologist. When I listened to this podcast by Laura Beale, it just really took my breath away. Lori Kanyak was 38 years old when she became a patient of Dr. Robert Haddon, a gynecologist at Columbia University in New York City. Lori felt lucky to be in Dr. Haddon's care. He was well known and Columbia was an institution. But there were moments during her treatment where she wondered if Dr. Haddon was crossing a line. But then on a Friday afternoon in June of 2012, there was no mistaking it. Dr. Haddon was assaulting her. She told police that very day. But by the next Tuesday, Haddon was back at work where he continued assaulting patients. Health reporter Laura Beale learned about Dr. Haddon years later at a medical conference and couldn't believe what she was hearing. I learned that he had been arrested, he had faced prosecution, and he was living as a free man. So one big question I had is, how did that happen? How does a physician sexually abuse his patients and then get to go home and retire? And question number two is, what was going on at Columbia? What was going on at Columbia? Laura's investigation is now a podcast and a print story exposing one of America's most prolific sexual predators and the Ivy League institution that covered up his crimes. Laura joins me now to talk about Exposed, cover up at Columbia University. Laura, welcome to Crime Story. Thank you for the invitation. It's really nice to have you here. So the first person we do meet in your podcast is Lori. Tell us about Lori and what happens to her and then what she does. Yeah, so Lori is probably the reason that we are having this conversation today because she uh, she was assaulted uh, on a postpartum exam six weeks after her baby was born. And she immediately texted her boyfriend and he came to pick her up and most importantly, he called 911. 911 operator 1520, where's your emergency? My fiance was at her OBGYN. Uh huh. And um, he basically did something inappropriate to her. Did he harass her, sir? Well, 
No, he he basically touched her orally. Okay. And that 911 call set in motion a whole series of events which are still playing out today. And you warn listeners, and I do want to warn listeners now that some of this information is pretty hard to hear, but very early on, we actually learned what he did, where he orally abuses her while her legs are in the stirrups. And I have to admit that even as a listener, when I heard that, I had this like moment of, I wanted to knock my headphones off my head. I could not believe that this was happening to a woman who was any woman, but in this situation. You've been covering medical stories for so long, medical abuse, medical crime. What was it like hearing what Haddon did to her? It was it was hard to hear. It was hard to hear because um, any sexual assault is horrific, but especially in this position of trust and vulnerability, because all of us make a decision when we go to a doctor and you expose yourself to a doctor and you give a stranger permission to touch you. And that is a very unique situation. And you are uniquely vulnerable in that situation. And so that that betrayal and violation of trust was just so profound. Yeah. And that's why we had a lot of discussion about how much detail do we include right at the outset? How much do you need to know, knowing that it would be traumatic and triggering and 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 it was not a decision we made lightly, but we we did decide that it was important at the very beginning to know what he did, uh, because if you know what he did at the very beginning, then you understand how absurd it was that Columbia made certain decisions like letting him go right back to work. Yeah. So obviously this podcast is one about what Haddon did, but it really is at its core about what Columbia didn't do. So can we talk about that? So Lori calls her excuse me, her fiancé calls the police. He does get arrested. What happens? So he gets arrested in his office. Um, and one of the big questions we had going in was how much did Columbia know about his arrest, why he was arrested? And we discovered that the chairman of the department, the head of the hospital, the dean of the medical school, they all knew, you know, within a few days. They knew what had occurred, that he was arrested on a Friday, on Monday, he gets a letter saying, you can go right back to work. And and importantly, it also said, we are aware that you are under investigation by the NYPD, which answered one of the questions we have is how much did they know? They knew exactly that he had been arrested and he was under investigation by NYPD. And they said, as long as you have a chaperone, you're fine. But of course, he wasn't phased by the chaperone policy. And they also start the letter with Dear Bob. Dear Bob. Yeah, it was so informal. It was the, we called it the Dear Bob letter because it's just extraordinary that you would be that casual. Like, I'm sure if they pass him in the hall, it's like, you know, hey, Bob. And he went by Bob. Um, but he was arrested for sexual assault. But he was assault. arrested for sexual assault. <laughs> and you're going to be so casual as to say, Dear Bob. In an official letter. In an official letter, yeah. allowing you to go back to work. I mean, yeah, dear Bob. There was something about the attitude that that conveyed, that you would just say, dear Bob. And the dismissiveness of the woman. Yes, yes. And and that she says they never talked to her. They never talked to her to see, like, to see what happened. And on Tuesday, he resumed assaulting women. It didn't even, it didn't, he was so pathological that even getting arrested didn't stop him even for a day. 
So Lori uh, calls the police. He gets arrested from a Friday to a Monday. He comes back to work. There is an attempt to charge or to find him guilty of that. Is that right? What Tell us what happens with that case. So, so Lori then goes to, uh, she's interviewed by Laura Millendorf. She was the assistant district attorney on the case. And she decides she wants to go ahead and pursue a case. Now, at that point, she only knew about Lori. She only knew that there was one victim. And she still wanted to go ahead. And Lori had had a rape kit done. There was DNA evidence, but the DNA evidence was inconclusive as to whether Haddon was the one who had assaulted her. The DNA evidence finds genetic material from Lori and two males. One of the males was her partner, and the other was unknown male. So in my mind, that's corroborative, but the DA's office at the time decided not to pursue the case. So then then what happens is Lori files a civil suit, and she had been very savvy about not filing a civil suit while the criminal case was under consideration because uh, a defense attorney could come and say, you just wanted money, that's why you did it. So she did not file a civil suit until the criminal case was dropped. She filed a civil suit. There was a little bit of coverage of the civil suit in uh, one of the local New York tabloids with a horrible headline, <laughs> and a tabloid headline. But that suit got the attention of more women and more women started to come forward. So then a couple of years after Lori's assault, the district attorney makes a decision to indict him again because now there were more witnesses. Now there were more women. And he is indicted in 2014. You were very careful in the podcast, and, and I want to be here too. I don't need this to be salacious, but I am wondering if you can give us a sense of what he did to the women. What were some of the ways in which he assaulted them? So this is one of the things that Laura Millendorf actually, as she began to research her criminal case, that that she started to discover is all the ways that he would assault them. So in Lori's case, he licked her during the exam. Uh, and that was common. But he had all kinds of other ways of touching women in ways that were not medical. And she talked about this. Having younger women parade around his office naked and calling that a skin check and telling them that that was how he would check their skin for melanoma. Double-handed breast exams with one hand on each breast while gazing into the eyes of the person. Abuse of pregnant women and lactating women, squeezing their breasts so that their breast milk came out sometimes on his body or his face. So of course these women are going to experience self-doubt about a crime that is really beyond the imagination of most civilized human beings. And so often they would go back to their doctor. And and I was I was glad that she did talk about it because in the podcast, again, we were we were really had so much discussion and tried to take so much care with how much detail we went into. Uh, but Laura Millendorf, describing it in the podcast, one of the reasons we used that tape where she described it is because it gave a way to give a sense of the scope of what he was doing, but not have to ask women to describe what happened to them. And so she really did a good job of just explaining explaining that. And also one of my favorite pieces of tape, if you have room for it, we we called it we called it the beautiful mind tape. Have you seen that movie? Yes. With the, okay, so you know there's a scene in the movie when he uh, when he's realizing like the patterns, the mathematical patterns, and he's standing there and and the numbers are spinning around, you know, on you know on the screen, and 
that was Laura Millendorf talking about when she realized, when she said, you know, I started doing the math in my head. I started, like, thinking, how many patients? I was trying to do calculations in my head, like, how many patients does someone see in a day? Even if he only abused 10% of them, what are the sheer numbers of victims here? There were victims of all ages and backgrounds in clinics for people who had no insurance and also in fancy offices on the Upper East Side. They were in every office, every age bracket, every ethnic bracket. I remember just being blown away by the numbers. I slowly came to realize that I was dealing with a sexual abuser of epic proportions. And I distinctly remember that when I started to say those numbers out loud, people looked at me like I was crazy. She became the, the, the first person to realize the scope of his crimes. And so we called that the, the, the beautiful the mind. The beautiful mind. Yeah. And there's just something so nefarious, and I know it's going to sound so obvious about a gynecologist, but that's the, it's like he almost chose that. I mean, you're already in such a vulnerable position. He's already touching areas where you, you that are so personal. And, you know, I too have been pregnant, and especially your first one, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, he did tend to target women who didn't really have a baseline to think like, well, maybe he should do that. And also, first time pregnant, you're so much thinking about the health of your baby that you're not taking time to think, well, was that normal? Should he have done that? You know, did that happen? And... And so he did he did tend to target women like that or the one, you know, woman who we talked to who said she was 16, you know, never been to never been to an OB before. And she's scared and she's pregnant and he assaults her pretty. It was pretty. That's that's when there were there were um, a few moments recording the podcast, things that were just so hard to say, even in the script and describing her, what happened to her, that was very difficult to describe. And it lives with these women. Yes. It's not something they can leave the office and let go. No. So he's indicted, but what happens after that? So that was a big question we had. And the one person who knew the most when we started this was not talking to us. And that was the assistant district attorney. And that's Laura Millendorf. Yeah. So she was living and breathing this case. She was in charge of the prosecution. I knew that no one would know as much as she did. And she wouldn't. She wouldn't talk. And and there's a variety of reasons why she wouldn't talk. One is this case had traumatized her, essentially. I mean, because... She had put her heart and soul into it. She believed the women. She wanted, you know, she wanted to see him in prison and he wasn't. And and then just the the dysfunction in the office, all of this. And the other is that, you know, you, you report on, I mean, crime and pocket. There's a there's a culture which I learned about. I didn't know. I'm a medical reporter. There's this whole culture that you just don't talk like in the criminal justice system. People just don't talk. You don't talk to the press. And you never talk to the press. And that was ingrained in her because, you know, she she couldn't abide by something that would be seen as wrong to do in the culture that she was in. So it took lots of time to get her to talk. We had some off the record conversations. It took probably 10 months of conversations to get her to, to, to trust us, to talk to us. And I told her two things. I said, one is you're a part of the story, whether you want to be or not. Like whether you want to be or not, but this is a chance for you to tell your side of what happened because her name had already been out there publicly as part of it. And 
Nobody knows how you tried to fight for these women. Nobody knows that. So she ultimately agreed to go on the record. And she fought for a long time, but she was dealing with, this was pre-Me Too, so that was part of the culture, is there was a fear among her superiors that people just wouldn't believe the women, you know, even though there were so many of them that they wouldn't believe. Now, I need to say, Laura Millendorf did not believe that. She she fully thought that when, that they would make excellent witnesses. And she was later proven right in the federal case when a lot of these same women testified, and they were amazing witnesses. So that was one fear. But also she was dealing with a defense attorney who really knew her stuff and really was super aggressive. And, and she was fighting that, you know, drowning her in paperwork and appealing to her bosses. And I was going to say the defense attorney had a relationship with Lori's boss. Yes, Cy Vance. Now, both the defense attorney and Cy Vance say that that relationship did not play into decisions and he recused himself uh, from the case. Um, But um, ultimately, uh, the decision was made to just let him let him walk away. And I and I have to say, like the the deputy district attorney, Carrie Agnifilo, who made that decision, she now calls it the worst, you know, one of the worst mistakes of her 30 year career. They charged him with a misdemeanor. Is that right? One felony, one misdemeanor, but no jail time. And he kept his license. No, no, no. He did. He did have to relinquish his license, uh, which was one part of it. You know that uh, that they did fight hard for, and that's why they thought, "Oh, the women are going to be happy." You know, the women are going to be happy, and the women we talked to were like, "What the hell?" I mean, they 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 couldn't believe that he was allowed to go free. But it's the reason he was allowed to go home is so complicated. It took an entire episode of podcast to explain it. So so I, it's more than I can say here. But but it it took a long time to sort of unravel all the forces that went into that decision. But he he was allowed to go. He was allowed to go free. And if it were not for the survivors, he would be still at home today. Which is exemplary of the problem, like you said, and and the and what happened with me too, which allowed finally for the the cultural societal sort of pushback against these stories to loosen up. Because yes. this idea, I think, at its core, is that it's him against her. No, you know, you can't really believe, you might not believe her. Yes. And I feel like Me Too pushed us a little bit past that. So that kind of response to it isn't there anymore. And then now there is, it is easier to move those cases forward. It It is, but and all that is true. But I have to say that Laura Millendorf always believed of that course. the woman would be credible. Like even pre-Me Too, she was like, these are such good witnesses. Yeah. And they would be fine on the stand. And they and she knew that it was... A, a really uh, a really powerful defense attorney who would go after them, who yeah. would go after their credibility, as is her job. Uh, but she thought that they would be able to withstand that. But she worked in the culture of it not being and not enough people like her believing that. Right. Yeah. Right. And 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 I have to say, the person who made the decision on this plea deal had not talked to the women. And 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 she says one of the mistakes is not not allowing the women to make the decision for themselves. Like, yes, I want to testify. I want to go forward with this. She made the decision for them. And she she has a lot of regret for that. And can we talk a little bit more about Colombia now? Because what we hear about in the podcast, and you do a lot of work to uncover Colombia's role in this, and their role to kind of keep it 
quiet. Yes. So can you tell us about, um, and there's especially one moment where we meet one of the victims from many, many years, even before you understood it, from the 1990s, where she presents you with information that actually shows that Columbia had known about this for decades. Yeah, this was uh, an extraordinary thing. Uh, One of the survivors was Evelyn Yang, the wife of Andrew Yang, who ran for president of the United States in the 2020 election. Please welcome Andrew Yang. Hello, America. I'm Andrew Yang. You might know me. And Evelyn had not spoken about what happened to her publicly. She had not spoken about her assault. And at the time that she decided to go public, only one other person had decided to to, to publicly reveal her name, and that was Marissa Hochstetter. And she went public after Haddon's district attorney case. Evelyn had seen what Marissa was trying to do and seeing that Marissa really wasn't getting anywhere with trying to draw attention to the case, with trying to ask questions about what was going on at the district attorney's office that allowed this man to go free. And so right after that, Evelyn's husband decides to run for president of the United States. And her Evelyn's assault had occurred in 2012 after Haddon had been allowed to go back to work after his arrest. So as her husband's profile is rising and her profile is rising, she meets women on the campaign trail who she's very moved by, like survivors of other kinds of trauma. And she realizes the support that comes from realizing you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And so she goes public mainly just to try to help other women. She wasn't thinking beyond like, what could this mean? She just wanted women to know this happens. You're not alone. And she decides to give an interview to CNN. What happened to me should have never happened. He was arrested in his office, and he was let back to work. I, and that's what's very painful, is knowing that actually what happened to me could have been prevented. So she gives an interview on CNN, and it was very difficult for her. And it's very difficult for her if you consider the stakes at the time as well, because, you know, her husband's campaign was still active and she didn't know how the media was going to react to this. And and it was an extremely brave act to, to, to go public, to take a big risk. And... The, this whole this whole story has so many series of incredible coincidences and events, and one of them occurred during Evelyn's interview. Yeah. So as it's airing on CNN, there's a woman watching who just happens to turn it on halfway through. She doesn't hear the name of the doctor, and and she's listening to this, and her husband turns to her and says, "That sounds like that." that doctor you saw in 1993. And her name was Diane Monson, and Diane had been assaulted by Haddon in 1993 during her first and only prenatal visit to Haddon. And Diane had some, done something extraordinary. She was a writer. She was working on her PhD. She, and she decided, well, if I tried to complain, no one would believe me because there was a chaperone in the room. So they would just say, well, there was somebody else in the room. This couldn't have happened. 
But she writes a very detailed letter describing in excruciating detail what Haddon had done. There was no doubt. It wasn't just Haddon made me uncomfortable. It was detailed about what he had done. She sends a letter to the chairman of the department at Columbia at the time. She sends this letter. She sends one letter there. She sends one letter to the risk management department. Uh, she gets a reply back from the chairman of the department that says, I'm sorry to hear this. You know, I'll look into it. I'll get back with you in a couple of weeks. Um, she never heard anything again. But the extraordinary thing for this story is that she still had copies of those letters, which is extraordinary, in a box in her basement. She still had them. So she immediately Googles up who's the attorney for Evelyn Yang, and she calls him and says, I have information that is important to your case. And he was like, I could get on a plane now <laughs> and go look for that letter. Um, but uh, what a coincidence. Like, if she had not happened to turn that on, who knows if she would have ever known. And it was because of this that things really then started to turn for Haddon too, right? Yes, on two fronts. So what happened, actually, Evelyn's interview was the turning point in the story for Haddon. Uh, two things happened. One is that other women started coming forward, like droves of other women came out of the woodwork. And I think at the time of Haddon's uh criminal case at the Manhattan District Attorney, there were maybe 20, 21 known survivors. Evelyn's attorney had maybe 30 clients. Within two more months, he had like 90. So the scope of his crimes became known. The other thing that happened is Diane's letter came to light. And Diane's letter provided documentation that he had a long, long history of doing this. And and I think from Evelyn's telling, like that helped to provide probable cause to the Fed, to the feds. The FBI started looking in and he was ultimately recharged in federal court. And when was he recharged? He was charged in September of 2020. And uh, what happens? So after his federal indictment, then uh, he was ultimately tried in federal court in January of 2023. And he was found guilty. An emotional day inside a Manhattan federal courtroom as a former gynecologist accused of sexually abusing dozens of patients was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Fox size Linda Now, here's a tricky thing, is that he, he couldn't be charged with sexual assault. Why not? One is that they had to charge him with a federal crime. Uh, but the other is, as part of his plea deal, um, it was stipulated that he could not be charged in the district attorney's office on the basis of any crime to any survivor known to the district attorney's office at the time. So any any of his victims known to the DA's office in 2016 when he got off, he could not be recharged on those crimes. Now, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't want to speak exactly how much that played into it. But I do know overwhelmingly the reason he was not charged with sexual assault is because he did need to be charged with a federal crime. And they chose enticement uh, for that. And it was basically like you can't lure someone across state lines for criminal sexual purposes. And so and so that's how they were able to charge him is from luring patients across state lines. So, so New York, you know, there were patients who came from you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, even one who flew in from Nevada, who had been his former patient, but she thought he was such a good doctor that she continued to come to him for her care. 
so that's how they were able to charge him and try him. But it was a really tricky case because I had thought before the trial, I had thought um, he's going to, you know, how, how can he not be found guilty? Like that was my. And then I understood more about the case. And so enticement, you had to prove intent. So they had to prove at the moment that he said to a woman, come back in six months or come back in a year or whatever the time period that he was having them come back, that at that moment he intended to assault them. It couldn't have been just, you know, in the moment he saw opportunity, it was a spontaneous decision. And I thought, well, how do you prove yeah, intent how did they prove at that? that moment? Well, that's known only to the jury. But... Uh, but one juror who was interviewed later said that it was the grooming. Like he groomed these women for so long to build their trust, to lower their defenses to. And so one interview that I saw with a juror afterwards said, if he didn't intend to assault them, why did he take pains to groom them? And he would. He would like be personal with them and he would ask personal questions and share personal information. And this idea that uh, I care about you. You know, which is which is not uncommon for sexual predators. That's it's people you trust. It's people you trust who are some of the most prolific sexual predators. And he was so good at at it. You actually heard from women later who told you even how long it took them to recognize that they had been sexually assaulted themselves. Yes, yes. And 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 one woman who state who read a statement uh, later in federal court said even after he was arrested, she didn't believe it. And this is how good a groomer he was. So based on these interviews with the jury, again, I don't know, I haven't spoken with any of the jurors, but I would say that, that, had, that they, they cited the grooming. Like why, if he didn't intend to assault them, why did he groom them? In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. So how did he manage, or I want to talk a little bit about the chaperones, because it's always this idea that there's a safety in having a nurse in the room, or that he was obviously able to either not have the nurses see, or as we heard in your podcast, even nurses who had suspicion or plainly saw it were not believed or didn't feel they could say something. And this isn't the first time in any of your investigations where you've spoken to nurses who don't feel that they have the power to say something or to do something about what they're seeing is wrong. So talk to me about that, that dynamic. Yeah. So we talked to one nurse who to who went public for the first time, you know, uh, on the record for the first time. Um and told us that she was uh, she was a medical assistant. She what we call them nurses because that's you know what we think of them as. But she was a medical assistant, and she was a medical assistant for a clinic in the early '90s. And she walked in on Haddon abusing a patient, 
And she decided at the time not to immediately go and report. And this is a complicated thing, but I, I understand it, is that she thought it would be, you know, her word against Haddon's. And you have the word of a medical assistant uh, against a physician on, you know, a faculty physician. So who who were they going to believe and who has the power in that situation? So she decided not to report, uh, but she she kept hoping that the woman herself would say something and what she told us is, I, I kept hoping that she would come forward and I would be there to back up her story. But as far as you know, we know she didn't. She did not come. She did not come forward. There's one woman in the podcast that you talk about who does try to come forward, who even goes to. Is it her? She has another doctor that she says had and touched me inappropriately. And there's the famous post-it note. So can you tell yes, us about that story? Note. Yeah, the post-it note, another document that we were just so happy st still existed. So a patient named Sandra Abramovich comes for, she, uh, she was also did not quite process that she had been assaulted. And, and, and that's one thing I hope we make clear in the podcast is, you know, the question becomes, well, how could women not know if they were assaulted? Why didn't they report at the time? And it's such a complicated, complex dynamic of self-doubt of, you know, not, wanting to believe something you trust, or if you do believe it, you think this only happened to you and it must have been something about you. It's it's a very complex set of feelings. So Sandy had been assaulted, um, but she kept going to him. And she was one of these people who said, you know, the part of me that thought he cared was greater than the part of me that thought he could do something like this. So she, she she keeps going to Haddon. Uh, she gets a letter in the mail one day from Columbia that says, oh, Haddon's no longer practicing. And this it just said, dear valued patient, Dr. Haddon's no longer practicing. It doesn't give any reason. Is this when he was finally arrested? This is when Columbia finally got rid of him. You know, this was in this was this letter went out in April of 2013. So it was some time after they'd gotten rid of him. The letter didn't say why he had left. It kind of sort of made it sound like maybe he'd retired. Uh, we've talked to women who said they asked and they said, well, he's just leaving for personal reasons. Uh, gave no hint at all. And they could have even said, um, you know, he hadn't been charged with sexual assault. So I understand that maybe they couldn't have said, you know, he was. But they, they could have done what... Uh, for example, there was a similar case that's going on right now in Boston at Brigham and Women's. And I'm told that in the letter they sent out, they said, this doctor's no longer practicing. If there is something about his care that you would like to discuss, here is a number to call, which gives a signal like there might have been something fishy about his, you know, it doesn't say anything about the doctor, but they didn't, Columbia didn't even do that. So the first time Sandy tries to ask a faculty member what happened to Haddon, uh, the faculty member immediately changes the conversation. I don't know anything about that and looks away. So she's like, okay, you know, we're done. We're not going to talk about this. Um, then later on, Sandy has a panic attack when she realizes that because Sandy is a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. She has a panic attack. She realizes fully that something was wrong. She immediately calls her current doctor. 
and says, I need to talk to you right now about something. She had a question of whether the ways that hadn't touched her were all medical. That was her question. He did these things to me. Is there any medical basis? The physician says, no, there was no medical reason for for him to do these things to you. And And this doctor is also at Columbia. Yeah, also at Columbia. That doctor, after this conversation with Sandy, says, oh, we've been told what to do. We've been told where to refer patients like you, patients of former patients of Dr. Haddon's. So the doctor leaves the room and she comes back with a post-it note with a name and number on it. Here, here's the person that you need to call, you know. And the name and number was for the Columbia General Counsel's office. So they were referring women to their lawyers. Now, there's one important thing I need to say about the timing of this. Sandy went to her, her doctor a couple of months after Haddon had been indicted in, in criminal court at the Manhattan DA's office. So Columbia knew at this point that there was a criminal investigation going on of his behavior at the DA's office. Sandy could have been a witness in that case, and yet she was never referred. Sandy didn't, wasn't even aware that there was a criminal investigation. She was never told that there was a criminal investigation going on of Haddon, which is extraordinary because you could maybe think, you could justify it by think by saying, well, they, they didn't know or they, they didn't get the same, but they clearly knew when Sandy came forward that this man quite likely committed criminal activity under the guise of medical care, and yet Sandy was never referred. But Sandy still had the Post-it note. And she, when we interviewed her, she had kept that Post-it note in her wallet for years. And she never called the number. (laughs) She never called the number, but she had the Post-it. Incredible. Yeah. Did you try to talk to Columbia? Did you try to get them Many to times. explain? So w- where did you, g- how far did you get? Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere. And we tried a lot. So we, we, we did, my co-reporter Bianca Fortas and I, we, had, we, we investigated for a few months. And then when we had enough material and questions for Columbia. So we approached them, you know, so we have, we have a lot of questions for you about this case. And they... We first thought maybe they would talk to us, but then they didn't. Uh, and so periodically we would come back to them and say, well, here's more questions that we have. And and one time uh, when we were getting near uh, publication of our print story and the release of the podcast, we sent them one list of questions that was seven pages long. Like, please help us understand this, explain to this, you know, why was a patient referred to your general counsel's office and the district attorney's office never notified during a criminal, you know, just all kinds of questions we had. All we got in response was carefully worded statements that were just a few paragraphs long. But there is a difference between Columbia's administration and the students. Because part of the podcast at near the end talks about these medical students and their response to it. And it's very heartwarming. It, it is. And I, I you know, I'm a, I can be a little bit of a crier and I have a hard time like talking about these students without tearing up. Because after our podcast came out, we made very clear Columbia's complicity as far as we knew in, in what had occurred. 
In fact, the last episode of the podcast is called Willful Blindness, which probably sums it up. And again, like we didn't hear from anyone currently at Columbia about it except for the students. And the students decided to have a demonstration on the day of the new president's inauguration. I'm a second year medical student um, and we're here to spread awareness about what's happened with Dr. Robert Haddon and the cover-up that Columbia has perpetuated for the past several decades. It's honestly disgusting and we're here to demand accountability by our institution and to show that as future medical professionals we will not stand for this and we want to make our voices heard. So these medical students were demonstrating in their white coats during the inauguration. And and their bravery is so astounding, you know, that they would do that because they have the least amount of power in the medical hierarchy and they are dependent on the faculty for, you know, their future careers. And they are out there and they have such amazing moral clarity in this. And it, they're just inspiring. And one of the women who, see, I'm tearing up now. One of the women, the survivors who was there during their inauguration said, this is the first time I might trust a doctor again. Huh is seeing these students and seeing how they recognize what is right. And how many women do you think there could be? You looked back at the years and the amount of women that went through his office. I mean, we know over 500 have come forward, and that's just through word of mouth. That's just through word of mouth. So I tried to do a little of the math. And if you consider a 25-year career, and the number of patients he saw, he saw during that time. And we figured on the low end, there were maybe eighty or 90,000 patient visits in that time. And you're talking about someone who was so pathological that an arrest didn't stop him from this behavior. So I think there could be thousands. I think there could be thousands of women, and they either haven't processed what happened to them or they... They think it was just them. They think they're alone. They think it couldn't have been. All the all of these issues that that plagued women for so long. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were thousands. There's a part of me that doesn't want to ask this question because I feel like this needs to be about the women and getting accountability from Columbia. But what do you know about Haddon himself? You did a little bit of looking into who he was and where he came from. We did, and it's very dark. Uh, we don't know much. We knew he grew up in a kind of well-to-do suburb of New York City called Garden City. Um, we know that his mother suffered from alcoholism pretty severely, um, and she would pass out during the day. We know that there was sexual abuse among Haddon's siblings during this time. Um, and we know that at some point, according to the court documents, his mother tried to take his own life. So he had a very traumatic childhood. Uh, and we tried to talk to, you know, former high school classmates and, and no one would no one would talk. I don't know if it's just because they didn't know anything because he wasn't exactly, um, you know, he wasn't like he was, you know, pretty 
prominent in school. Like when I looked up his yearbook, there was nothing listed, which is in itself, it doesn't mean anything, but it just means that he wasn't, you know, captain of the debate team or, you know, people, you know, out there. He wasn't as charismatic. He wasn't as charismatic. And so, you know, maybe he, and we did talk to, I talked to college classmates who said he just would kind of fade in the background. And, and some of them didn't even know. And he went to a, like a small liberal arts college that was mostly female. So there weren't a lot of men. And they were like, was he in my class? Like I, like they had to look up the yearbook. So he, he did kind of fade into the background. Um, and, um, you know, we know that he, so he went to college. He had a little trouble getting into medical school at first. He went uh, to uh, St. George's, which is on, it's in Grenada. He went there for a year. Then he transferred um, and then he got this residency at Columbia and he was at Columbia from the start. Like he was at Columbia residency and he never went anywhere else. And and we know from the people we've talked to that uh, his residency ended in 1990. And we the earliest victim we talked to was 1992. So he was abusing patients pretty early on. Wow. You know, and he might have been doing it through residency. We just don't know. But the earliest that we talked to anyone was 1992. And she was a 16-year-old girl at the time. So decades and decades. Yes. So as I mentioned before, I mean, you are a medical reporter. You have incredible podcasts. You've obviously been paying attention. We know you from Dr. Death and from all your other wonderful podcasts. What did you take away from this story? How has it affected you? I think the women affected me the most because I've, I've never I've done stories, certainly of medical system failure for a long time, but I've never done a project where that involved talking to person after person who'd been sexually assaulted. And their bravery is just something that, again, I'm a crier. Their bravery is something I will take away uh, and and. And their willingness to trust us with their stories. You know, this is incredibly painful for them to talk about. And they have to talk about it over and over again. You know, some of these women, like Evelyn and Marissa, Lori, Diane, you know, they've been talking about this for a long time. And they keep having to talk about it. And I'm sure they want to get to the point where they don't have to talk about it anymore. And yet here we are. Talk to us again. And I admire that so much in them. And we couldn't have done the story without them. And frankly, there would not have been justice without them. And I hope that we were able to do something for, you know, accountability in this case. But if it wouldn't have been for them, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So all the credit goes to them. Well, credit goes to you, too. (laughs) It was great. And you really did open up that world to us and show us where accountability needed to be. So thank you for your work. Well, I I do want to thank them. And, and, you know, why do the, the reason we do these things is not just to hold Columbia accountable, which is a big thing, and the failures of the criminal justice system accountable. But I hope that if there's another institution somewhere that has somebody just like this, that they make different decisions, that they learn from this, and they make decisions that fall on the side of protecting women, not just keeping silent, circle the wagons, you know, we're going to, we're going to fight this. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed talking about it. Good. Good. 
After Laura and I spoke, Columbia University did issue a public apology, and it announced it would be notifying more than 6,000 former patients of Haddon's of his conviction and sentencing. They also announced a third-party investigation and the creation of a $100 million settlement fund that would be open for one year starting in January 2024. To date, Columbia has paid out more than $200 million in civil suits and is facing another civil case launched by more than 300 victims of Dr. Haddon. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcasts True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager and Arf Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.